Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon, and this is episode 52, Peter the Great, part 7, St. Petersburg and Family Matters. And you can read Family Matters as either Family Matters, i.e. events and relationships within a family, or Family Matters, i.e. family is really important. As you'll discover, though, only one of those definitions fits the bill for this episode. Anyway, thanks for listening in. Okay, so last time out we completed our look at the Great Northern War, which on paper ended with the various treaties in 1719, 1720 and 1721, but in reality, and with hindsight, had ended with the Swedish defeat at the Battle of Poltava back in 1709. I'll be taking a look at the aftermath of the war and what that meant for Russia probably in the next episode, but today I'm going to put the military campaigns to one side and concentrate on events that took place on the home front at the same time. And to break that down even further, we'll be looking at how St. Petersburg grew from a tiny fortified settlement, and then we'll cover Peter's relationships with the two most important people in his life, his soon-to-be official second wife, Yekaterina, or Catherine, and his son and heir, Alexei Petrovich Romanov. And again, here the word important means two completely different things. Catherine was important to Peter on a personal level. He genuinely cared for her, and likewise, she genuinely cared for the Tsar. Whereas Alexei was important because of Tsarevich, he represented the future of the Romanov dynasty. But neither father or son had much respect for one another, and this, as we'll see, is going to cause one or two problems, 
And that is another example of British understatement. Or is it English understatement? I don't know, but it's understatement anyway. OK, let's wing our way over to the Baltic coast. It's 1707, and that tiny Russian settlement that I've just mentioned was in the process of being transformed from an unimportant blob on the map to what in time would be a majestic city that would come to be referred to as the Venice of the North. Back in May 1703, Peter had looked out across the desolate, marshy wilderness of the Nieva estuary and to the Gulf of Finland beyond and decided that this would be the place where Russia would protect and consolidate its recent territorial gains on the Baltic coast. But he would need to move fast because with Swedish forces never far away, he had no idea how long the settlement would remain in Russian hands. Ironically, if he'd just waited for a few more years, until 1710, when the established port city of Riga would fall into his hands, there would have been no real need to build St Petersburg, which was further north and therefore ice-bound for longer. But the Tsar was never one for patience. Russia finally had an outlet on the Baltic Sea, and the Tsar aimed to keep it, whatever the risk and whatever the cost. Four years on, and we're back in 1707 now, a tiny blob on the map had mushroomed into a bustling settlement with a fortress, port facilities, a church, and most importantly, a working shipyard. Now maybe that doesn't sound all that impressive, but when you consider that nascent St Petersburg was on the same latitude as southern Greenland, well it still is, Hudson's Bay, and southern Alaska, and that there were no large supplies of timber and stone in the vicinity, that flooding was commonplace, and that the whole workforce had to be conscripted from other areas of Russia. It's a minor miracle, really, that anything was built at all. The master plan was put together by a Swiss-Italian architect named Domenico Trezzini, who had previously worked in Denmark and who had been recommended to Peter by Frederick IV. But driving it all forward was the Tsar, who from his base, located in a small log cabin, which incidentally still survives to this day as a museum, willed and forced St Petersburg into existence. Labourers by the thousand, most of them serfs and skilled workers, were drafted in, given six months subsistence, work to exhaustion or death, and then replace. Peter's city by the sea, it was said, was a city built on bones. As Petersburg grew, so did Peter's vision for what the city would or could become and represent. He was spending more and more time and money on his pet project, and when he did make one of his infrequent trips back to Moscow, he would talk of nothing else. To put it bluntly, the whole scheme was becoming an obsession. In 1708, that was certainly the view held by the Russian elite. Charles XII and his Swedish army were approaching the western borders. Orders had been given to burn vast swathes of the countryside. And yet here was the Tsar faffing around in some godforsaken northern backwater, building a city where no one, well, no one of any importance, 
was ever going to live. Well, that's what they thought. The trouble was that Peter was thinking along the same lines, and later that year he sent invitations, i.e. orders, to various members of the aristocracy, his sister Natalia included, to come and make their homes in Petersburg, which they did because no one wanted to be on the wrong side of the Tsar. The hope then was that Peter would tire of his obsession and that everyone would be able to move back south, but yet again they were to be proved wrong. The city on the Nieva was here to stay, and reluctantly, nobles, merchants and foreign ambassadors all had to grin and bear it. Moscow, still the heart of Russia's soul, represented the old ways. Petersburg was the future, and the Tsar's successors would continue to shape and build the city upon the foundations that he had laid. And a few years later, in 1713, Peter declared that St. Petersburg was to replace Moscow as the capital of Russia, which, by the way, was a position it would hold until the communists took over in 1918. Geographically, or geopolitically, this was a slight risk. If you look at a map, Petersburg is a bit closer to Russia's borders with potential European enemies. But for Peter, it was a chance worth taking. And he would be proved right, because, again as I've mentioned previously, whatever the city's name, St. Petersburg, Petrograd, or Leningrad, it would never be occupied by a foreign power. OK, now it's time for a fairly loose and spurious tie-in to the next subject. That little log cabin in Petersburg shared a connection with Poltava, Russia's campaign against the Ottomans after Poltava, and pretty much every other event since the secret marriage of 1707. Catherine was always there by her husband's side. Most of the time she was just there to support and look after her husband, particularly when he was suffering from his increasingly frequent seizures or fevers, or, as at Poltava, she was just watching events unfold in the background and then was brought to be the first in line to congratulate the Tsar. However, during the campaign against the Ottomans that took place after Poltava in 1710, Catherine would prove to be more useful in a practical way. Peter had travelled south with the army, and Catherine, of course, was with him. But the Russians were so outnumbered that fairly soon their positions started to come under threat. Peter grew increasingly concerned. He would later write that this was his lowest point and that he genuinely feared for his life. Catherine, however, is reported to have remained calm. The Russian army tried and failed to fight its way out of trouble but in doing so managed to inflict some serious damage to the Ottoman lines, and as so often, stalemate ensued. Peter sent envoys to negotiate, and the local Turkish commander was open to the idea that knowing that he held the upper hand, he wanted to get a better deal. That's the Turkish commander, not Peter. Catherine suggested that an outright bribe might be the best way to deal with things, and Peter, desperate to get out of the situation, offered Azov and a large sum of money, plus, at Catherine's urging, her jewels. Charles XII, who, remember, had escaped to Ottoman territory, 
and was apparently nearby, got wind of the negotiations and tried to scupper the deal. But by the time he'd arrived on the scene, Peter and Catherine were on their way home. In 1711, the royal couple were on the move again, this time through Poland to Saxony to attend Peter's son Alexei's wedding, more of which later. Her first three children, as we know, had all died in infancy, but in 1708 and 1709, two daughters had been born, Anna and Jelezavita, who would both survive into adulthood. Catherine would go on to have seven more children after that, but none of them would live past the age of eight. In 1712, Peter finally decided that his marriage to Catherine should become official. The wedding took place in St. Petersburg, where else, and was attended by the couple's two daughters, Peter's three surviving half-sisters, and Prescovia, the widow of Peter's half-brother Ivan V, and her three surviving daughters, Ekaterina, Anna, and Prescovia Jr. Peter's son Alexei, who was accompanied by his new German wife, Charlotte, was the only adult male Romanov member of the royal family in attendance. And that was because, apart from his father, he was the only adult male Romanov, which is a point to tuck away for the future. And don't worry about all those names that I read out earlier. Um, that will all be sorted out. Moving on to the political front then, in the previous year, 1711, Peter had created a new advisory governmental body, the Russian Senate, to look after things in Russia whilst he was away on his travels in Germany. But when the Tsar returned, he decided to keep it in place, mainly because it suited him to delegate some of the more onerous and humdrum affairs of state, whilst he concentrated on a couple of thornier issues. And the first of these was Alexander Menshikov. For a while now, Peter was aware that Menshikov had been skimming off the top and feathering his own nest. But the Tsar had turned a blind eye. And also, whenever he'd been on the verge of doing something about it, Catherine would intercede and talk him out of it. In 1714, though, Peter decided that enough was enough. He'd received a report from a new rising star of the Russian nobility, Vasily Dolgoruki, and yes, that is a descendant of Yuri Longarms, which pointed out in no uncertain terms the extent of the corruption. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
It was following the celebration of Menshikov's name day, and the whole thing about name days is something I'll explain at some point. In November, that Peter suddenly decided to bring things to a head. He openly accused Menshikov of corruption and said that whilst he'd been prepared to allow his dishonesty at the beginning, when the sums involved were small, now that the amount stolen ran into millions, his number was up. Menshikov fell to his knees and begged for mercy, and Catherine, who was present, as usual, went to say something, but Peter cut her short with a cool and concise, Madam, this is none of your business. Two days later, key members of Menshikov's circle were arrested, and the questioning and torture sessions administered by Dolgoruki began. In February 1715, the confessions were in and the guilty verdicts prepared, and in the April of that year, three of Menshikov's circle were executed. Menshikov received a colossal fine and was put under house arrest, where he no doubt expected and waited for that ominous knock on the door. Dolgoruki and his friends now had the Tsar's ear. But that knock on the door? It never came. Why? Because Peter was about to become preoccupied with an even bigger problem, his son Alexei. Okay, so time for a bit of background. Alexei was born in 1690 and was basically brought up by his mother for the first eight years of his life, with Peter having little or nothing to do with either his son or his wife. During those early years, the young Tsarevich's upbringing was typically Russian, i.e. conservative, traditional and pious, and disdainful of outside influences and ideas. And as far as we can tell, Alexei was happy and content within the confines of his mother's family. And then suddenly, and as we know, in 1698, it was all change. Alexei was removed from his mother's side, Eudoxia was sent off to a convent, and suddenly he was under his father's authority and was being schooled and influenced by a number of foreign tutors. Then in 1703, when he was 12, Peter decided that his son should join the army, as a private, you know, show him the ropes and toughen the boy up a bit. And by all accounts, Alexei's early military career went well, and as he approached his mid-teens, things were looking good and everyone seemed content. But from that point onwards, the relationship between father and son became increasingly tense. As Alexei reached adulthood, he had his own group of friends and followers and wanted to forge his own identity and stop just being known as the Tsar's son. Plus, he was becoming increasingly resentful of his father's treatment of his mother. Peter, on the other hand, expected his son to dedicate himself to Russia and embrace the pro-Western course that the country was on and so kept him fully occupied with affairs of state. In essence, Peter wanted to control Alexei, just like he controlled everybody else. Well, apart from perhaps his wife. After Poltava, the Tsar packed his son off to Dresden in Saxony to finish his education, and here Alexei studied French, German and mathematics. But Peter had another reason for sending his son west. Up until this point, Russian Tsars had married Russian wives. But from his time in the West, Peter had seen how other European rulers were able to form advantageous alliances 
through marrying off their sons and daughters to foreign princes and princesses. The Tsar therefore decided that Russia was going to join in the continental marriages game and he arranged a couple of foreign matches. First up was Anna Ivanovna, the middle of the three surviving daughters of Peter's poor half-brother, Tsar Ivan V. In 1710, she married Frederick William, Duke of Courland. But, unfortunately, he died a year later, and Anna would never remarry and would never have children. And then a year later, Alexei was married off to Princess Charlotte of Brunswick-Wolfenbüttel. <laughs> this was seen as a highly advantageous match for both Alexei and Russia, as Charlotte's sister, Elizabeth Christine, was married to the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles VI. Again, that's all a bit confusing, but Alexei's brother-in-law was going to be the Holy Roman Emperor. Incidentally, the eldest of Ivan V's surviving daughters, Yekaterina Ivanovna, would be married off in 1716 to Karl Leopold, Duke of Mecklenburg-Schwerin, and they would have one daughter, Anna Leopoldovna, and that's another name to note for the future. For the first six months or so, married life seemed to suit Alexei, but then he made it known that he found his wife boring and unattractive. Plus, he started to drink and was often in a drunken stupor for days on end. When Peter found out, he again decided that work was the answer and for the next couple of years, Alexei was kept occupied in Poland, Finland and Pomerania. The Tsar no doubt hoping that a couple of years apart would rekindle his son's marriage. And it did for a while. And in 1714, a daughter, Natalia, was born. But soon after, Alexei went back to the drink and he also moved in his Finnish-born mistress into the palace. Peter, who had a soft spot for Charlotte, was furious. By the time of Peter's public wedding to Catherine in 1715, miraculously Charlotte had become pregnant again and given birth to a son, named Peter, of course. Later in the same year, Catherine also gave birth to a son, who was also named Peter. And so, just like that, the Romanov dynasty suddenly had a surfeit of male heirs. However, you just knew a however was coming, didn't you? Just ten days after giving birth, Charlotte died. And soon after, Peter ordered his son, Alexei, to travel up to Petersburg to oversee the progress of the building of new ships for the Baltic fleet. Alex Alexei went grudgingly, but failed to carry out any of his duties, and when news of this got back to Peter, he sent his son an ultimatum. Either he sorted himself out and started to take his role as Tsarevich seriously, or he was out of the line of succession. Alexei, now a wreck of alcohol fueled anxiety, wrote back offering to renounce his position in favour of his son. The Tsar agreed, but on the condition that Alexei lived out the rest of his days as a monk in a far off monastery. Alexei had six months to make his mind up. Wow, the relief. Six whole months. Anything can happen in six months, Alexei thought. The war might take a sudden turn for the worse, or Peter might die, or he might forget about the whole thing and just leave him in peace. 
But the six months went by quicker than Alexei had anticipated, and the war didn't take a turn for the worse, and the Tsar didn't die, and neither did he forget. In August 1716, Peter, who was in Amsterdam discussing military matters with his European allies, wrote to Alexei telling him that if he wanted to stay as Tsarevich, he'd better join him in the West. Now. No delays. No excuses. Distraught and terrified, Alexei panicked and fled from Petersburg with his mistress to the, the only safe place he could think of, Vienna where he blurted everything out to his brother-in-law, the Holy Roman Emperor, and begged for his protection. Charles thought carefully, but in the end decided to help the Tsarevich and had him hidden away, firstly in a remote Tyrolean fortress, and then, when that was considered to be unsafe, had him moved to the castle of Sant'Elmo near Naples, which at the time was in Habsburg territory. Now, at a time when Peter was trying to impress Russia's newfound power and standing upon the rest of Europe, Alexei's flight left him with feelings of deep rage, frustration and embarrassment. In his eyes, he was being made out to be a laughingstock, and something would have to be done. He needed to get Alexei back, and to do that, he needed someone clever, loyal and trustworthy. And after consulting with Romodonovsky, Count Peter Tolstoy, Yes, an ancestor of the famous author Leo, was put in charge of operations. At some point in late 1717, there was a breakthrough. Russian agents had tracked down Alexei, and then Tolstoy managed to persuade the frightened and disorientated Tsarevich to write to his father. Alexei's letter stated that he would only return to Russia if his father swore a solemn oath that he would not be punished and that he could marry Yefrosinia, his Finnish mistress, and live quietly and peacefully on his estates. Surprisingly or suspiciously, the Tsar agreed, swore the oath, and in January 1718, Alexei was back in Moscow. But if Alexei thought that he either knew or could trust his father, he was very much mistaken. In February, the questioning started, and on the 18th, Alexei made a confession, which implicated everybody in his circle as traitors, and also declared publicly that he was standing down as heir to the throne. Alexei was released, but the horror and humiliation had only just started. His friends and associates were cruelly tortured, sometimes with the Tsar watching, and some of his servants were executed. Dolgoruki, stupidly or bravely, tried to intercede on the Tsarevich's behalf, but paid the inevitable price and was exiled. And Menshikov, who kept his head down and paid his fine, was back. Even Alexei's mother Eudoxia was dragged back to Moscow to face accusations of adultery which unfortunately were true. She hadn't been living the, the life of a, of a chaste nun and she had been having an affair with a guards officer. Found guilty, she was transferred to a grimmer, more secure convent near Petersburg. By the way though, both Dolgoruki and Eudoxia would make comebacks, but later in the year, Alexei's fate would be sealed. In April, Yefrosinia was questioned. She wasn't tortured, but during her questioning, and, and this is ominous, 
the instruments of torture were left out on display, and in fear of her own life, she provided enough of a story, including reference to letters that Alexei had written to the Holy Roman Emperor, that convinced the Tsar that his son was indeed a traitor. Alexei was taken away, imprisoned in the St. Peter and St. Paul fortress in St. Petersburg, and there he awaited his fate. However, Peter was now in a bit of a quandary. Whilst he was convinced that his son had plotted against him, he'd also given his word, on oath, that no harm would come to Alexei. The Tsar therefore decided to refer the matter to a grand council, composed of the clergy, the senate, ministers and other important officials. They would make the decision as to what happened next. The church, though, headed by Stefan, the still semi-official patriarch of Moscow, declared that this wasn't an ecclesiastical matter, and they passed the decision across to the civilian authorities. On the 24th of June, 1718, the Senate and the temporal lords took the easier route, or the route that was expected of them, and they declared Alexei guilty and sentenced him to death. But even this wasn't enough for Peter, and later in the month, the mentally broken Alexei was subjected to two rounds of the knout, the first consisting of 25 strokes and the second 15. And at some point on the 26th of June, the Tsarevich was found dead in his cell. Okay, we're going to leave it there for this week. Next time in the penultimate episode on the life and times of Peter Romanov, we'll be taking a look at the consequences of the Great Northern War and trying to explain the death of Alexei. We'll spend a bit of time looking at some of the events that occurred in parallel with the later stages of the war that I either haven't covered or that I've just hinted at. And then we'll cover the years 1721 to 1725, which saw a steady decline in Peter's always volatile health. Anyway, until then, stay safe and I'll speak to you all again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 